Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As we're recording this, it's awards time in Hollywood. All the studios are pushing their shiniest baubles onto the filmmaking community in the hopes that they will garner little gold statues that can help inflate the box office. This year is a bit different than most. The important studio movies are, for the most part, crashing and burning. How can you tell they're important? Because they're hugely expensive and at least three hours long. But the audiences are not responding, which this year is not surprising. Hollywood is spending a huge amount of time making bloated movies that moviegoers just do not want to see, Avatar to the contrary. What movies are making money? Those feisty little movies that go for the jugular. Genre movies, movies that scare you, make you laugh, move you in smaller, more personal ways. Movies that don't cost a lot, don't have a lot of financial risk, and movies that can afford to do something different and exciting. It may not be a great year for the studios, but it's it's been a surprisingly good one for the horror genre. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Barbarian, Violent Night, The Black Phone, Smile, Bodies, 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 X, Pearl, The Watcher, Fresh, Nope, Crimes of the Future, The Menu, Speak No Evil, No Matter What Your Taste in Terror, there was something out there for you this year. But of course, horror isn't tasteful. Aggressive cinema is an embarrassment to the hallowed halls of Hollywood, though it seems that's where the evolutions in film and filmmaking seem to embrace creative thought. Our genre is considered a gutter to the mainstream, but it's really the one where we can probe most deeply into the things we feel, the things we fear, the things we hide, the feelings we don't access lightly or gently. Our genre is a rude one, but it's one I gladly share with the ones of us. Goobble gobble. Our guest, Roger Avery, is a stalwart in the world of aggressive cinema. An Oscar-winning screenwriter and admired director, he also co-hosts the wonderful Video Archives podcast with Quentin Tarantino. We'll take a deep dive into rude cinema and beyond with Roger right now. So, Roger, Roger, what do you think the appeal of aggressive cinema is? Well, um... It, it's probably a little bit of... Uh, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on your show. Oh, you um, nobody belongs I, here more than you do. I'm, I'm really grateful to uh, to be invited. Uh, it, it's <laughs> so, great to have you. It's a great you. pantheon, and I, I guess post-mortem means after death. And so this <laughs> yes. is where you go when you die. Is That's your, right. Your when your career is washed up, it's a post-mortem. <laughs> <I'm>, here <laughs> I am. Yeah. <laughs> As if. So, um, uh, aggressive cinema. So... Um, you know, I, I think what it is, is there's always a certain amount of um, envelope pushing that you're trying to do as a, as a filmmaker. You're always trying to uh, reveal, you know, sort of forbidden fruits. And you're always trying to kind of push the envelope, I guess, is just the best way to put it. And um, when I kind of came about as a young man in the, in the business, um, you know, I, uh, I started out actually, uh, like one of my first gigs was working for Charlie Band. 
and wow. at Empire. And I was a runner projectionist there. And so I got wow. to see like around 1986, 1987, kind of what I would call sort of peak exploitation coming out of Empire and uh, Charlie's company. And um, not too long after that, you know, I was making my, uh, um, you know, my first film. And what happened was the explosion of DVD. I mean, DVDs right. suddenly came on the scene and there was this sort of sudden need for product and everybody was looking for product. And there was just this moment that occurred when at live home video, when Ronna Wallace was running the company and she was just, if you were louder than anybody else and more violent than anybody else and more uh, wild thinking than anybody else, uh, she was open to it. And she was, she was ready to like make noise at this video company because that's kind of what you need to do to get an end cap at the uh at walmart or target right now it's uh streaming where you have thumbnails to choose from and yeah. you gotta be loud and yeah, truthfully it's kind of the same model it's yeah. it's sort of not too different a uh, financial model everything has kind of moved sideways it's just weirdly enough it's residuals have changed <laughs> like, that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> and so um uh ron at that time she made um uh, let's see, it was Reservoir Dogs, Killing Zoe, Bad Lieutenant. And those were like the three that kind of um, got got jammed into the pipeline really quick. That's a pretty great triptych. Yeah, it was a pretty great triptych. And that was a really um, amazing time for that company, which eventually, shortly thereafter, became Artisan Home Entertainment. And then ah, that became absorbed okay. by Lionsgate. Right. And so um, in those days, the model, which, again, it's not too dissimilar from today, was, okay, we're going to make the movie cheap. We're going to make it for like, you know, uh, they'll tell you, oh, we're going to give you two million to make it. But you really only have like one or seven fifty. You know, I know how Charlie works. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this wasn't for Charlie, but no, but, uh, but it was, was the same model, he, basically. He, he I, I definitely mean, inspired a and, generation. And I was born in Canada, and so I have Canadian citizenship. And um, and so I thought, well, this is going to be my path. And there was this company that was making like. I don't know, they were making, I think, 12 movies in a row in Canada with the same crew. And right. they were just going to like, you know, just like a sausage machine. And they have and, a big know, Film number incentive. eight fell yeah. out and we need somebody. And so they had me and it's like, okay, you're Canadian and you qualify for this many points. And if you get a Canadian actor and I'm like, well, I, I, those days I was thinking uh, Keanu Reeves or uh, Kiefer Sutherland who right. are both Canadians. I thought I could use one of those guys. And... Uh, Anyhow, I tried to assemble this movie. They said, all you have to do is now go get some foreign sales to cover the... Uh, <laughs> That's all you it. have to do. That's all you have to do. <laughs> and so I uh, flew to Cannes. Like, I had no money at this time. I mean, I was pretty much broke, and I spent... I maxed out my credit card going to... Uh, basically getting a ticket, going to Cannes. Monty Hellman let me sleep on his floor. Wow. Um, because I couldn't afford a place. And I would eat hors d'oeuvres at parties because I couldn't afford to eat. <laughs> it's like, And every now and then I would run into somebody who was like, oh, you're up and coming and I'll take you to lunch. Like some attorney or agent or something would take me to lunch and I would like, you know, I'll have two entrees. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, Let me take some home. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, and while I was there, you know, trying to basically sell territories on on that film everybody kind of who had seen me trying to hawk my my script around hollywood um killing zoe which um i I should even wind back a little further because it was really lawrence bender who his call to me that the uh, great lawrence bender i uh did a pilot for him 
uh, years ago, Austin Oz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he was my producer. Yeah, a wonderful guy. He and well, Lawrence was he was one of the the young guys we knew who had actually made a movie. He made a movie with Scotty Spiegel called um, The Intruder. Yeah, which was a monster in a supermarket. They right. had a they had a supermarket location, and they were like, "We've got this for a week for free. If we can get you know kick together a couple of hundred thousand dollars, we can make a monster movie." And, I think Lawrence maybe knew John Beekler, the uh, the makeup effects, the makeup guy, effects yeah. guy, and like we can you know make this happen, and they did. And so Lawrence, uh, they were making Reservoir Dogs at the time, and Lawrence and Quentin had scouted a location at a bank, and they were like, "Wow, this is an amazing bank location." If only we had a script that took place in a bank, you know, we don't need a bank because Reservoir Dogs doesn't need a bank. Right, right. And so Lawrence started calling writers he knew. He's like, hey, do you have a script that takes place in a bank? If you do, I can make a movie. <laughs> this is a great way to approach film production. Yeah. and We have a bank. Let's write Exactly. A and I had been working at Empire. And so I had sort of seen like Charlie's system. And I had learned from, you know, David Schmoller and Dave Dakota and all those guys and all and the editing staff there. Like they had always you know, let me sit in on uh, edit, edit sessions and, hey, you want to cut some? Cut, cut a piece of this movie. It's crap. <laughs> it's like go for it and so you know I, I kind of learned um a bunch of early tricks you know working on movies like crawl space right and stuff like that robo jocks and all well, Stuart gordon movies yeah and, yeah um things like that and so to me I, I that was the closest thing that i had in that moment to the roger corman school of filmmaking which when i grew up i was like in love with i was enamored with this idea of the corman school where you could just walk into his construction yard studio in Venice yeah. and, you know, hustle a little. And next thing you know, you're directing a movie. <laughs> but by the nineties that had kind of faded out. That had but, kind of yeah. faded and Charlie was there. And I kind of quickly realized, well, Charlie's system wasn't really, um, I, I wasn't really able to rapidly advance from <laughs> a guy working the projector and, uh, and running around editing elements uh, to director. And I was like, that's not going to happen fast enough for me. And so I basically bumped into Lawrence and Lawrence had already made the intruder and he was getting reservoir dogs going. It hadn't yet gotten going, but he called me up and he was like, Hey, do you have a script that takes place in a bank? And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do have a script that takes place in a bank. And so I'll I, give it to you in three days. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It was a long weekend. I hung up the phone. I started writing. And by Monday I had this script which I based on, you know, uh, I mean, uh, not really out of my life, but I based on this kind of European trip that I had had where I'd met these French guys that I thought I, that I knew from Los Angeles who were completely different once I started hanging out with them. And uh, they were all heroin addicts all of a sudden. And it was like, <laughs> oh, and, I, and I was like kind of just so naive about that. And so it was sort of like a, um, so in writing very, very quickly, I just sort of spilled a bunch of that into it. And um, I ended up with this script. And then I proceeded to go out and we started getting it going. And um, it just kind of, the first path was, oh, we'll try to do the Canadian thing. Right. And so they, and they were like, forget, they were like, forget the bank <laughs> in, in Los Angeles. Like uh, we, we couldn't get the money going really. It, it was like everybody in Los Angeles had met with me. You know, I had walked into the, the doors of both high and low in the business, you know, from 
uh, well, I probably shouldn't say the low, but <laughs> you know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Know, you know who those guys are. I met everybody, and everybody basically had kind of said no to us. It was a little too weird of a of a movie with the French elements and right. that it took place in France, and I was planning on shooting it in Los Angeles. It was kind of hard for people to wrap their head around that and i was like but it's a movie you just you know yeah you honestly, we make shit up all the time <laughs> yeah darby o'gill and the little people is shot in uh burbank <laughs> yes, and exactly. that is the most irish movie as far as i'm concerned yeah and so yeah. uh it, it's movie magic right and uh but it was hard for people to wrap their head around you know the um just the nature of it but for me uh, that's exactly what they used to do at the Corman school. You know, you would get somebody who's like, okay, you're going to make a woman in prison film and we've got the, you know, hell's angels to be in the movie. So it's going to be a biker film also. Right. And, okay. Go is just keep it in focus kid. Yeah. And you'd go out and you'd make the, freaking best women in prison film. You know, you can top was seen every 10 minutes. Yeah. You'd figure out how to make that art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you may you you keep one foot in exploitation. Demi and, and Kaplan did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One foot in art house, and you end up with these movies that are just, I think, wonderful. And they always tend to be genre films. Yeah. Um, just because genre movies, they tend to feed the the genre need you know, that the audience wants. Um, but then at the same time, they it's a it's a good way. And and you said it very eloquently to to hide social uh, commentary, to hide uh, political commentary. To, you know, we see all sorts of great um, stuff. I'm, actually, Joe Dante just popped into my head as he, oh, yeah. as he frequently does because uh, I absolutely love him. But his, um, his Masters of Horror one, for, yeah. for example, which is a zombie movie, but it's yeah. also a very powerful political statement. Yeah, we showed that at a festival in Torino in Italy. It got a 10-minute standing ovation. Uh, The the city of uh, Argento, no less. Exactly. (laughs) And he was there. Oh, was he? And, And, of course, he had done one for each season as well. Oh, yeah. Argento. Well, so I... um. So this was something I was like always wanting to do. I want to make an art house movie. Like I like I I'm like that. I like I, I mean I like all movies, but you know I like very esoteric art house films. I I wanted to make Killing Zoe to be something like if Werner Herzog was making sort of a a grindhouse film, right? You know? Because it's got element. It's a smart grindhouse movie. You know, it, it's, thank you it's for a, saying that it was smart. I, it is. <laughs> it's a creamy, but it's a you know a French creamy. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, well, that'll make it a little different. And okay, so that was like a little too much for people to think about. But by the time I I had gone to Cannes and I was uh, you know there hawking my wares there because I now realize, okay, if I can't make it in LA, suddenly this Canadian opportunity came up and I'm Canadian and I was going to be film number eight. And, and, and so I go to France, I go to France again. I'm sleeping on Monty Hellman's floor. I'm starving. I'm selling stuff. And suddenly people start seeing me and they're like, Hey, it's that kid who's uh, from LA. It must be real. Yeah. He's, <laughs> and, he's here in camp. And, um, and suddenly like, uh, in that moment, um, Russell Mulcahy actually signed on uh-huh. to direct a vampire script that I had written called 99 days. Uh-huh. And to, which to me was like in the moment while in can that happened. And so Republic pictures who, uh, announced the movie and it was like, they gave it a big full page thing. And in that moment, in that single moment, just because I was in variety and my name was on a, you know, and my script was on a thing. Suddenly they were like, Oh, something's happening. And yes. so this French producer, Samuel Hadida said, Oh, I will buy France. And, uh, and since you're here, 
Um, and, and Benelux. And Benelux. <laughs> like he, I, it comes with Benelux. I insist on Benelux because he's like a, a, or was a uh, wheeler dealer shyster stealer sammy uh i i love him but i'm also you know i i, I wrestle with him emotionally <laughs> yeah. um and ed gala actually got into you know near fist fights with him when we oh, were dear. working on a movie together in uh in france oh dear um anyhow uh um so he's like oh well uh who do you want to be in the movie? And so at the time I was really, really interested in Aren Jacob, the girl who was in red, the Kishlovsky film. Right. And, um, and so, uh, he said, well, uh, I, I'll introduce you. And, and I really wanted Johnny Gunglad and, uh, who I had seen in Betty blue and, uh, Nikita as well. And in fact, before I went to, um, uh, to, uh, can, I went to the video store that I used to, I went to video archives, the video store that I used to work at. We'll get into that. And I got a whole bunch of tapes out of it and using two VCRs cut together my own teaser trailer using elements of, you know, a documentary on the Louvre and uh, elements of Nikita, La Femme Nikita and all, all these various movies, a little bit of Betty Blue. And I made a little trailer out of it. And I took it to Cannes with me. And that way I could kind of show people. I later found out you're actually not allowed to do that. You're not supposed Oops. to. It's like a, some kind of copy. But it's not yeah. for broadcast. Yeah. It was just to give people an idea of what the movie would look sure. like or feel like and cut it together. And I kind of sold it like I'm making a very, like I never told anybody I'm making an art house film. I said, I'm making a really super sexy thriller. It's going right. to be like an action thriller with like sex. And there's going to be a sex scene. And there's <laughs> going to be, it's going to be a thriller. Like I didn't really tell them I want to do like this kind of, sex death vampire Nosferatu, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of very unsexy, <laughs> um, uh, sex scene in killing Zoe, but that's what I did. And, um, and so Sammy said, well, why don't you come to Paris after, after can, and I'll introduce you to these actors. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. It's happening. And I had to go back through Paris anyways. And so I delayed my flight home and I went and I checked into a hotel. I couldn't pay for it. at this point. I was maxed out, wow. but these were the days before they, um, before they had computers on your right. credit card, so they, they would just take a, an impression of right. the card. And so they took an impression of my card and I checked into this little tiny, tiny hotel and, uh, and I proceeded to meet these actors. Sammy started introducing me to these actors and, uh, Iren Jacob said, no, I'm waiting for Kishlovsky on, uh, on red. And so it was like a big letdown. And then John Hugh came in and at this point, he's a huge star in France. He, he, he was peaking in, in France and he came in and they sat down, he and his agent sat down with me, Donna Sienne, she's a, his French agent. And, uh, they sat down and they sat across from me and he leaned over and said, John Hugh, this is his agent talking, loves the script so much and what's the movie so bad? What do we have to do to convince you <laughs> that he's right for the movie? And I was like, well. I'm we going can... to be very demanding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm a very demanding person. I, I, and But I told him what I always tell the actors that I'm working with. I said, listen, this movie is going to have no money. It's going to have a very small budget. It's going to be a very tough shoot. It's going to be super demanding. I'm going to ask everything of you. And if you're not game, don't worry about it. Like, I think and I this told, is your first move. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, it's, I'm going to take you to the Col de Monde, which is like the asshole of the world. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, it's, and this is my first film, but I'm being on, I want to be honest with him. And yeah. also I, I found that the more I tell people that, the more they want 
to do to do it. Right. The rougher they think it's going to be early on, the more exciting it actually is. Sure. And the more honest you are with like, look, we don't have resources. I've had actors on my films like we don't have resources. They start picking up, you know, when things go south, we we have to move or something. They start picking up boxes and cables and moving yeah. them with me, even though you're really not supposed to. But yeah. by that point, everybody's kind of you're in it. You're not necessarily doing it for the money. None of us are going to get rich doing this. Is the um, the foundation that I I tend to begin with, which I learned from Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a couple years. It's the same year as Pulp Fiction that the movie comes out. Well, um, yes, this movie was made before Pulp Fiction, and actually, right. um, and and just just after Reservoir Dogs. Like we were we were in prep when Reservoir Dogs um, was. Uh, let me think. Yeah, I was in. Yeah, actually, I was in post on this movie when Pulp Fiction was just starting to ramp up. Right. And so I was actually but doing they, color wedges and stuff like that right when... And they uh, both came out in 94. Uh, yeah, they both kind of... Well, this one, I think Killing Zoe came out in 93. Like Did late it? 93, okay. October of 93, okay. and then kind of hung around a little bit in uh, New York and Chicago. Right, right. <laughs> into, the, into the new year. But it was like... It was kind of happening. It was happening for Quentin, and I was absolutely catching some of that. Uh, so you um, just made heat. this tiny little movie that started to get some attention, particularly at film festivals and the like. But then you and Quentin had written Pulp Fiction together, and suddenly this became a game-changing movie out there, and you became a an Oscar-winning screenwriter, which completely fucked me up. <laughs> like so tell me the effect that it had on you personally as well as professionally well um uh i mean it was an intense rush of success very quickly it was like one day you're eating cockroaches to stay alive <laughs> and the next day they want to blow you <laughs> it's like uh it, it, it like and and it and it's a very strange actually even with Killing Zoe, it was kind of like that. And Killing Zoe was like that. I remember making the movie was a very, very intense, you know, rigorous, rough experience. And I ended up penniless at the end of it, having worked for Sammy. Ended up absolutely penniless afterwards. And then I go to uh, Sundance with the film. And I and they wouldn't let me in to the proper festival because they said it's a foreign film. And I said, no, but it's an it's a I'm like an American filmmaker, and right. I am I am a U.S. North citizen. American. Yeah. Well, I, but I'm a yeah. dual citizen. I really am. I, I, to, actually, to that point, I had never returned to Canada since uh, I was a baby. I had grown wow. up in Arizona and Los Angeles. Okay, so it wasn't Manitoba. That's just where you were born. It's where I was born, and like a month later, we we left. But I've kind uh, of always kept my Canadian identity, even though I had never returned until I made Silent Hill. That was actually the first time I had returned to Canada. Interesting. And so I, I'm really a Canadian by... Um, by uh, birth only. Although yeah. I've, I've always heard about the reputations of Canadians as being so friendly and nice, probably because like when the snow sets in, you're relying on your neighbor <laughs> to stay alive. <laughs> like, and, and then most of the industry moved to Canada. Yeah, well, and then, and then the Canadian thing. I always thought, well, you know, if, if ever I'm, you know, if there's a draft or if I have to get a movie made, like the Canadian citizenship might come in handy. Yeah. Even uh, in recent years, I've shot more in, in Canada than I've shot in the U S well, just for the exchange. It's, uh, yeah. you know, just at the dollar exchange, at least at that time, especially and yeah. at that time. But for me, um, growing up, you know, having been born in Canada and knowing the identity of Canadians, which is they're very friendly people yeah. in general, at least they, um, they, they have a history of being friendly. 
Um, and so I always tried to live up to that in a weird way and to yeah. be friendly, <laughs> like, yeah. like a Canadian, I guess. Well, my company is Nice Guy Productions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. And then also yeah. I, um, you know, I, I grew up loving, you know, Canadian filmmakers. I mean, Cronenberg most prominently, right. but, but really uh, Norman Jewison most respectfully. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. He's the grand old man of Canadian cinema. Yeah. To me, one easily one of the greatest uh, filmmakers of all time and certainly one of the best widescreen uh filmmaker directors uh, that i can uh, from from i don't know when i think about this is a guy who made not only did he make fiddler on the roof but he made jesus christ superstar <laughs> yeah. like yeah like yeah. he's kind of and and both of them are so, and a hundred other movies and a hundred yeah. other movies i mean he made rollerball yeah actually rollerball like what? Well, he's like Robert Wise in that they could do anything, and they were expected to do anything in that era of filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're expected to be able to take material and you know, and a director direct be a professional director with it and service the material first, right? And 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 do everything you can to elevate that material. It and became. The autism thing, uh, autourism, not autism. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's autu- a kind of autism. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> but the autourism thing may have been popular in France in the 60s, but it never really hit American cinema until the 70s. Yeah, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was the 70s. I mean, but this was also, you know, the 70s and early 80s were a time when, I mean, I can remember going, and I'm sure you can remember, going into Westwood Village and Fitzcarraldo would be opening yeah. at the Regent or something. Yeah. And they would have like a giant poster for it of like, you know, Kinski and the boat, you know, and him like screaming into into the pit, you know, like, ah, as the boat is being pulled up the hill by all the natives and everything. Like, I think about that now. It's like, what a crazy time in history that that movie, like this kind of crazy film like that could open in Westwood. Right. In a major Big. cinema. Yeah. yeah it, that was awesome. <laughs> it, it was an amazing time. And I, I'm a guy who was born in LA, lucky enough to be born where the business is centered as Gala. I'm sure you were born in LA too. Yeah. Um, but you Santa were, Monica. You, yeah. uh, <laughs> the Saint, best part of LA. St. John's. Me too. Yeah, there it is. There so, it is. but you were raised in LA or, yeah. or Southern yeah, yeah. California. Torrance. Torrance. Yeah, yeah. Torrance. But the land um, of HD Halecki. And like when I grew up, I grew up right in your old town. Uh, do you remember old town yeah, shop? Like I, I know lived, it very well. well I my, could, as a little boy, I mean, as like a five-year-old, I could walk to old town yeah. And in those days. And well, you know, Lou Zamperini, my father-in-law, was from Torrance. Really? Uh, and he, yeah. he's the guy Unbroken is about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, he's kind of the hero of Torrance. Yeah, yeah. He certainly is. From his World War II Zamperini exports. Field, right? Yeah, it's named like, after him. Yeah, named yeah. after him. <clears throat> yeah. But being brought up in L.A., who... What were the movies? I didn't that... know that. That's why I'm kind of I'm kind of gobsmacked by that. That's some... <laughs> well, people wonder how did Mick Garris's name end up on Unbroken? Yeah, it's Angelina Jolie movie, big Hollywood movie like that. And that's uh, well, that's why. Yeah, uh, but him and also Lloyd Wright. Those are the two right. uh, the two Torrance uh, guys. But for me, it was like being a kid. It was all about ferals and <laughs> right the birthday and, parties and Old Town and Delamo. And in those days, like when Gone in sixty seconds opened. Like H.D. Halecki would be out there in front of Old Town, crashing uh, cars together. You oh, know, like wow. every day at noon, like before the <laughs> noon, before the matinee, they'd do a car crash in front oh. of the theater. Ah, uh, it goes back to the days of uh, William Castle and everything. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's like the show in show business. Yeah. Well, what were the movies and the movie makers who first engaged you and made you feel like not only I want to do this, but maybe I can do this? Well. 
so my dad, um, I, I wouldn't call him a sophisticated moviegoer, but he is a moviegoer, like yeah. a tried and true moviegoer. Like he goes to movies. He'll even today at, you know, how old he is, like 90, he'll uh, walk into a movie theater without knowing what's playing. He and does say, I'll see that because yeah. it's the, cl- the, that one's playing soonest. I'll go to that one. <laughs> and that's a, that that's a behavior I kind of love. So the love and, the the love of film is congenital. Yeah, absolutely, and he would drag me into movies and go to movies. And then when we, I remember when we moved to Los Angeles from Arizona, was kind of what I would think would be the beginning of my movie um, awareness. Awareness, and the first movie that we saw in movie theaters, I was in a in a proper movie theater for me because everything before then was television. My earliest memories of media are mostly like Batman, yeah. which I was really into like Adam West, Batman. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, so Batman in black and white, I was like on our black and white television. I was really into that. And my earliest, earliest, earliest memory. My, in fact, my earliest memory is the end credits of the prisoner, the, oh, the Patrick McGowan yeah. TV series. Like I can remember the penny farthing bicycle, the music and yeah, the, of course. kind of it's being assembled. And, uh, Patrick McGowan told David Cronenberg when they were making scanners, I wish you'd been there when we were doing the prisoner. Actually. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I all. kind of even <laughs> wish that when they had remade, and I haven't seen the remake that AMC did uh, with James Caviezel. No. But uh, I haven't seen it, but I kind of wish that Cronenberg had done that because yeah, that, that would have motivated me to see it. I've just yeah. always been afraid to see that. Uh, I'm sure it's fine. I just have been afraid to see I it. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. But so what was that first movie? So the first movie was Sound of Music, and it was uh. playing at the Cinerama Dome. And uh, so my first real first movie experience was you know sound of music wow sitting in the theater and uh and and to this day i can't watch that movie without falling to tears Uh. multiple times throughout the film i think the movie is so powerful and so um uh such a great family love story and um, it, it's, it, I just think it's a, it's a magical movie. I just right. love it. And probably because of that early oh, it's your first ecstatic one. experience. And in that yeah. theater of all places, which had a much bigger screen in those days. Yes, yeah. And it was a, a, a magical place to see a magical movie. No matter what was playing there, whether it was How the West Was Won or that, it probably would have been the movie that changed your life. And, um, and, it, and it definitely did. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> I have a few other, I mean, there's a number of other movies that I saw with my dad, but the other ones that were really big, like, um, the other, the one, in fact, that was the, the one where I actually thought to myself, now I know what a director does. Now I understand what's happening when I go into a movie was, uh, my dad took me into, and I think it must've been a re-release of some kind, uh, but he took me to see Clockwork Orange and I was young. Oh, wow. I was young, but those were the days when like, Hey, Exorcist is playing. Uh, should we take the kids? Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> was like, that was a big hit book. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, um, and so I, I, I wandered into Clockwork Orange, you know, as wow. a young boy and watching it. Um, y- I mean, I think I consider the movie to be a very strong, uh, statement against violence. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and that was how I took it as as a child, because even the idea of of conditioning being presented or conditioning being the, the worst thing, that choice being the most important thing that we have as human beings. And when you take that away, what are the ethical consequences of it? Okay, so 
it's something that was super powerful to me. But more, more important was looking through Kubrick's eyes. I realized that when we sit in a movie theater, we're dreaming while awake. Yes. And we're looking through the eyes of someone else and watching their dream. Yes. And it's the closest approximation to that. And, um, and though movies have a kind of um, uh, culmination of arts together, you know, it's right. a, a convergence of all these different art forms together, there is one art form that is completely unique to cinema that we don't see we didn't see anywhere else. And that's the editing pictures and editing of motion picture is, uh, and, and montage and how Kubrick cut, you know, made that movie to music, how powerful the movie is, the, the single point perspective, the, uh, I mean, just everything about it, it gripped me so deeply. And so, um, it, it, Kubrick's talents got so deep into me. Well, it's it a remarkable. Became, it's my favorite film. It's yeah. a remarkable experience for a child to see this movie and a sophisticated reaction that you had seeing it the way it was intended to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing this movie around the same time I'm seeing movies like you know Bugsy Malone or yeah. Muppet Movie or stuff like that, which <laughs> are great on there. <laughs> oh no, I mean, those are I, those are two actually Paul Williams movies. Yeah. <laughs> now that I think about and it, I worked with Paul. Yeah, oh, yeah, and I and he was in Rules of Attraction. I mean, I yeah. called him up because I, I, I mean. I so adore I mean, Paul Williams. I'm so, yeah. uh, um, he, he means so much to me. He, Why his music means so, so much to me. Songs about rainbows. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> so Paul, I had to call him up. And so I found, I found somebody who had his number. They gave it to me. I called him up and he was just a consummate gentleman. He is the nicest, kindest, sweetest man. He's like, Roger, I've been waiting for you to call me. I've been waiting. And then he really put up, I told him it's going to be shit. It's going to be a shitty experience. It's going to be exhausting. We have no money. Like I, same thing I tell everybody. Yeah. And he was like, I'll be there. I'll be there. And it was a, it was a tough experience. Well, yeah. before we get to rules of attraction, I want to go backwards again, because sure, you sure. had some things that really helped steer your career into filmmaking uh, after winning an award for a student film you made. Yeah, yeah. Um, from the Los Angeles Film Teachers Association, which for me, having been a very bad student most of my life, <laughs> uh, to, for the Film Teachers Association to give me a gold trophy was for me a big deal. And it led to time working in advertising. Yeah, yeah, actually. So tell me how that fed your, your work as a filmmaker Well, um, and your education. So... Um, we had been, I had been making, you know, super eight movies, um, and regular eight, regular eight, and then ultimately super eight, uh, films. And then even some 16 millimeter stuff. I had gone to a school called art center (laughs) in Pasadena, uh, Pasadena art center, college of design. And, uh, you know, my classmates were, uh, Tarsem, uh, you know, and, uh, Michael Bay and, uh, and it was just all of us and we're all making movies and, and really none of us have changed since then. Right. Tarsem was doing Tarsem things. Michael Bay was doing Michael Bay things. <laughs> okay. Like he was renting cranes on his films, <laughs> on his student films right out of the gates. You know, he had uh, yeah, like yeah. steady cams and shit, you know, <laughs> and I was out there doing what I do, you know, making little uh, gritty little thrillers. Yeah. What are you gritty little thrillers? That's <laughs> <laughs> genre films and, um, on super eight and scraping pennies together to make them. And, uh, um, and it was an advertising design school. And so the kind of path at that school at that time was, 
um, you're surrounded by all these designers and design people and photographers and uh, and other kinds of industrial artists, uh, vehicle design people, product design people, stuff like that. And the path was make a reel of your work of commercials, basically. So you take your uh, you go you find somebody in a product design class and they've designed a new water bottle and it's a for a fake product and so you do a water commercial and you're telling a story in 60 60 second stories and uh and it's actually a a super strong discipline to have to be able to to do that and it gave me kind of a profound respect of of uh of uh, of advertising and uh commercials in in general but I was also a little bit out of place because, as you can tell from you know the Video Archives podcast, like I'm really like a movie guy and an exploitation film guy. Yeah, like. this is a very button-down job. And I got into um, like some arguments in a film class with the teacher who was teaching and who I and a teacher who I very much respected and and loved. I actually really used my favorite teacher, but we got into it over Lifeboat, over the uh, oh. the Hitchcock film. And uh, we, we ended up in a kind of um, theoretical argument about the, the future of the people in that boat. Uh-oh. And um, My favorite thing, of course, is his, his cameo in Reduso, the Reduso ad. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I had an offer to work at Empire. And I took that and I weighed the two and I was like, okay, I'm spending money I don't have. My, I'm spending my parents' money, which and Art Center was, even then was terrifically expensive uh, to go to. And I knew that it was my dad who was not really uh, wanting me to go into film. He's like, what kind of, that'll never happen. What a pipe dream. Yeah. Yeah. You you need something to back that up. You should learn how to do, you know, shop and working on cars or learn how to operate heavy machinery or something. That'll, (laughs) because my dad's a mining engineer. And so, uh, and so I, I was conscious of how much money of money of his I was spending. And then I had this job offer with to my to my mind with Roger Corman, right? The new Roger Corman, which basically paid you uh, <laughs> enough to buy a hamburger every day. Yeah, exactly. And so I dropped out of school after having this like crazy wild argument, this unreasonable argument. After which I was like, I left that class and I was like, what the fuck am I listening to that guy for? He does not know what he's talking about. I like him. He's a nice guy, but I like, I can't learn anything from him. I can teach him things. I mean, I was arrogant. Quentin will tell you that I was absolutely an arrogant. Young <laughs> you were <man>. confident, <laughs> super confident. I was super, super kind. You know, a confident person still questions themselves, but I, you know, <laughs> you were beyond that. <laughs> I, I kind of have always believed that um, one of the things you need to make it in this business is, uh, well, actually I have my three P's, which are, uh, you have to be passionate. You, like, you have to like, cause when you're trying to get money from somebody, when you're trying to, as you've done, sit across the table from them, you're trying to get money. Some executive or some producer or some financier who's been in this business and they're just deadened to it. And what you have to do is you have to ignite within them the passion that they had that got them into the business in the first place. Because all of us at one point were kids sitting in the theater like insects watching that flickering light you know, on, on the screen and just loving it and wanting to dedicate our lives to it. Okay, that's passion. That's passion. So you've got to go in there because you've got to sell them on your passion and you've got to make them passionate. And so even when you're not feeling it, you've got to feel it. And then... Um, 
let's see, persistence. You have to be persistent. Uh, there's plenty of talentless people that are making really good livings in Hollywood and it's not because they're talented. It's because they're the persistent ones. Most people, when they walk into a dark tunnel and they start walking in and it starts getting dark and you start losing the entrance, the light of the entrance. And pretty soon you're bathed in blackness and darkness and you don't know what's ahead. Most people logically will turn around and walk back. Right. Okay. It's the filmmakers that keep walking forward with the belief and you're going to guide your people with you. No, no, there is an exit. You don't know that there's an exit, but you're going to like believe that there's an exit. You're going to will an exit into existence. Cause it's easy to give, give yeah. up. It's easy to give up. It's uh, and so you constantly have to um, be persistent. And because of that, uh, you also have to use, utilize uh, positivity or positive visualization. Right. You have to like a like a. I always hear about like football players or baseball players. They see where the ball is before they throw it, so that they know that it goes there. You have to visualize it being there, and then it's there. And so uh, I remember early on, before Gala was born, actually when Gala was, uh, <laughs> even when your mother was pregnant, we would her mother and I would just walk around for hours and we would visualize where we're going to be, what we're going to do, how we're going to achieve it. And every day was sort of like a focus of visualization of what the future was going to be. We're visualizing the end of that tunnel, the exit of the tunnel, the the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. You call it Roger Avery's three P's. Yeah. And then my, patience my could be added, although it's sort of persistent. And, and so <laughs> along with that, uh, like confidence kind of uh, does play into a lot of it because you have to confidently guide people into that. You have to confidently, you know, uh, convince people of your crazy idea. You, you have, have to, to be able to back it up. Yeah. And then you also have to like show people that you're responsible because, you know, you're making a movie with money and it is an industry and it's not, you know, it's not, you're not alone. It's not me just with a Super 8 camera. And if the movie fails, fails it's uh you know that that weighs doesn't just affect me it's not just my money it's you know it's a thing it's a business it's show business exactly and so um you know i i'm always trying kind of maybe too much aware of of that you know i uh if i could almost erase anything out of my own personality traits it would be my knowledge of awareness um, of the business, my awareness of the business. If I could take away my awareness, I think I would be blissfully ignorant of how barbaric it is. Well, you also had the most remarkable film school in that you were at video archives with Quentin, both of you immersed in cinema. Yeah. Immersed in cinema that to this day is still a huge part of your life because of the podcast, which is named after that video store. Yeah, we're basically doing now what we did back then. Yeah, <laughs> like, we watch and, movies which together is, yeah, and we, talk we, about We just them. get together, we watch movies. I mean, in those days, we would watch movies every night on video, whatever was coming out that week, whatever we got, whatever, if somebody had a bootleg of RoboCop that was going on, <laughs> you know, whatever we had, we were watching in like this kind of rental that all the workers rented together. I just visited. I, I wasn't uh, one of the people that lived there, but Quentin lived there. And um, and so after work, we would do that. And then during work, we were doing the same thing. We were popping movies in and going and seeing them. And then every Friday, Quentin and I and whoever else would want to go with us, we would go see like three movies a day, basically. Oh. And those were the days when I think about that now that, you know, you could work on a on a minimum wage salary. You could feed yourself. You could rent a place to live. And you could go to a movie every day. Yeah. It's kind of 
That's gone. Gone. Yeah. That's gone. It's, that's kind of, if there's anything, if there's something wrong with our business, that's what's wrong with our business is that. Well, it's, LA has become such a cruel place. If you're a hopeful filmmaker, good luck finding an apartment without six roommates, you know, just being able to find a job, being able to live, being able to, to feed your Jones for the movies. Yeah. I mean, oh, well. regular filmmakers <laughs> who have actual careers are having yeah. trouble doing that. Yeah. Let yeah. alone, you know, young the young kid with a sack over his shoulder coming into the gates of the city. But you also found your creative partner in Quentin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the I worked on this movie, uh, Lords of Dogtown, on the, the script for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was never... I, having, though I grew up in a... Uh, um, Beach City, uh, in Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach. Uh, I wasn't really like one of the surfers. I, yeah. I, I was the kid who was into movies. I, you know, there was like the surfers, there was the punks because there were all the kind of Red Cross guys, and uh, the Descendants were friends of mine, and um, you know, Black Flag. Well, they were at Redondo High, but it was so there was a big punk scene in the uh, in the Beach Cities area, and um, and then there was all the surfers and guys like. Frohoff and people like that who were surfing and and probably going professional doing that. And then there was me and like my friends. The movie <laughs> like, geeks. But yeah. when I worked on Lords of Dogtown, I was like, well, what's my entry into that movie? And then I realized Zephyr Surfboards, the little store that they had in Venice, that was video archives. Like to them, to people who love surfing, you know, like that was it. And they yeah. were around at this kind of revolution that was occurring when we were going from clay wheels to urethane wheels. And that's like the video revolution. So suddenly yeah. these guys who were like, you know, the surfboard shaper, um, Skip Englum, who uh, was very much like our Lance Lawson. He was like Lance, the the owner of our store. He was the adult who had the store and all the kids in the neighborhood who were into that would go there and that became the clubhouse. You would hang out there. And if you could, you would work there yeah. because like, then you get to hang out there and you get paid for, you know, for being there. Sort of. And, yeah, sort of. Yeah, sort of. It was minimum wage. But we we got along on that. Of course. And you could. Then. Yeah, back then you could. And yeah. so um, so it was like everybody who was working there, even though it was a suburb of Los Angeles, of, you know, of Hollywood, uh, everybody loved movies. And everybody came there because they loved movies and because we were making movies and wanting to make movies. And I remember uh, right around the time when um, uh, Spike Lee did um, She's Gotta Have It and Soderbergh did um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, right around then, that was the moment Quentin and I were lifting off from video records. And we were and ta- the industry at the we same time. We were talking time. about it. Like, yeah. it's happening. It's, ha- it's possible now for a guy like Spike or Steven to ascend out of, yeah. out of with these, sm- the Sundance if you're era. smart with how you write it. And so Quentin and I came up with the Corman school theory, which was as few locations as possible, as few actors as possible. Um, and, you know, keep it theatrical and tight so that you can keep the budget low, like as few company moves as you can, as you can do. And so when I wrote killing Zoe, that was like, okay, as few company moves as possible. That's the, that's the agenda as cheap as possible. I, okay. I need to have, I got to have some 
I don't want to be crude. Yeah, I have to have some breasts in it. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to like go wild, but my daughter's here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Keeps well. me keeps me sane. <laughs> uh, like, um, uh, it's got to have some sex in it. It's got to have some violence in it. It's got it's going to be you know it's going to be uh, obviously it's going to be a bank robbery. We're in a bank. And, right. But and so this was a great launching pad for you creatively. You you met your creative partner who stimulated each other in not just together, but in your own yeah. projects, which you uh, bounced off of each other. Quentin, um, I, I had been making little movies. And at this point, I was, uh, though I was still working at Archives, I was also going to school at Art Center. Um, I was just beginning that. And uh, Quentin had this movie he wanted to make, uh, this script he had written with a friend of ours, Craig Hammond, a super talented writer and, uh, um, and director. And he, uh, um, they had the script, My Best Friend's Birthday, which was hilarious. It's a, it, was, it was the first time I had read a script that any of us had written that was actually really good. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is really good. This is really fantastic. This is like freaking Instead fan- of just a movie fan script. Yeah, yeah. Instead, or instead of the stuff that we were like, you know, we would, I, I had managed to at one point get the screenplay for, Walling Green screenplay for Sorcerer. Oh, I remember wow. I, I got it from... Uh, uh, I love that movie. It's one of my very favorite films, yeah. and so that was like, of course, one of the scripts that I, you know, sought out. And I mean, it's written like a novel. The script, because mm. there's so little dialogue in the movie, yeah. and and so you end up reading these beautiful. And so I, I kind of that was my imprinting of like, you know, when you're a child, you look to your parents to imitate and to mimic so that you learn how to be. Well, when you're same thing as a filmmaker, you look to your cinematic fathers yeah. and uh, grandfathers and grandmothers and grand um, etc. <laughs> you, you, you and your uncles and aunts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy you, you who look did at, it for me and was you imitate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Steven Spielberg is the first guy to hire me as a screenwriter and second guy to hire me as a as a director. And it was film school doing amazing stories was. You know, having scripts directed by Joe Dante and and Bob Zemeckis. And... I have to confess to you, I was insanely jealous of you <laughs> when we would hear about you <laughs> back in those early days. I was very lucky, but I got a later start than you did. You know, I was uh, I was in my thirties before I was making a living doing it, and you were doing that. But but I want to talk about adaptation too, because that's been an important part of your career. Sure. Before we get to before you to do, I have one little anecdote I want to tell you oh, when okay, I was doing Killing right. Zoe. Okay, so because um, uh, it was. <laughs> So we were driving around in location scouting and everybody was stressing because we needed a, like I had this look scene because when I was in France, uh, this friend of mine was taking me around and we were like, oh, uh, is that cat dead? And I was like, no, no, that's a uh, cat's been there for days. Well, I guess it is dead. And he like oh. checked it. And it really happened. And so I was like, oh, I put that in the movie. I wrote it into the script. And so we needed a dead cat and it was, oh. had no money to make the movie. And so like, we don't have a dead cat. There's no dead cat. There's you know, nothing to do. And so I remember a, we're driving down the road and I saw one on the side of the road, like a, a roadkill. And I said, pull over. And, oh, and the, the AD refused. He was like, no, he wouldn't let me do it. And that's when they decided to spring for it. And they said, you're in luck. Because there's just been this movie made, Sleepwalkers, and they have so many cats. Yes. And so we went to the warehouse at the prop place, and it was insane. It was like these giant shelves that go to the ceiling, like wall to wall on either side. I never went there. And it was filled with cats of every kind. What kind of cat do you want? Do you want a tabby? Do you want a black cat? Do you want a this? Do you want a that? It was like, they're all from Sleepwalkers. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> 
Oh, I, I'm kind of glad I never went into that building. <laughs> it was unreal. That's so funny. <laughs> it was unreal. That's funny. Okay, now you can talk to me okay, about Okay, well, adaptation. now this is a good transition because we did a translation of Stephen King to the screen, Yeah. even though it wasn't based on a book. But, you know, you you adapted a game with Silent Hill, but most famously, Rules of Attraction. Um, the Brett Easton Ellis book. I contend that there would be no Euphoria series if it hadn't been for Rules of Attraction. I, I haven't seen uh, the Euphoria series it's yet. It's amazing. I under, yeah, and I understand it's really good, and I understand yeah. that um, Sam um, Levinson, uh, I understand that he uh, um, pays homage uh, quite a bit to uh, Rules of Attraction, which I'm grateful for. Well, you did a, for. a young I'm, I'm happy movie. someone is able to monetize yeah. <laughs> the... <laughs> but, but you made a movie about young people that they were unsavory, to say the least. Yeah. And that's not what the studios were putting out at the time. But it was very groundbreaking. And you threw all of the tools of cinema into it, all the tricks and cinematic gimmicks and things that really worked to propel the story and you had a wb cast yeah so people were not expecting james vanderbeek and and uh, you know the cast that you put together to behave in ways that they behaved in this movie i um well first of all i love adapting material yeah i i really really enjoy it i've you know adapted beowulf yeah, uh, I've adapted, you and Neil Gaiman. Yeah, me and Neil, and uh, I've adapted, you know, the life of Dal- Salvador Dali. I haven't made that movie yet, mm. but um, I, I, I love doing adaptations and um, interpreting uh, material. It's uh, um, there's something special about it. And do you feel hamstrung in any way by? Well, because I've adapted King and Barker. Yeah, and you know, I like I, I was actually meditating on your adaptation of The Shining. Mm. And um, thinking about it because it's very it's true. Fortunately, it's, he he wrote the script for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what's what's interesting is I mean, King is very very difficult. I think to adapt. I would think because his um, what makes his writing so powerful, at least to me, and because I adore uh, um, King's work as well, and the Stand most especially. And oh, so good. Um, I think that you uh, actually did an, an outstanding. Oh, um, thank you. Outstanding job uh, adapting the state because that is almost unadaptable. And for you to condense it the way you did and to actually capture it in the casting and he was wrote really good. The, I've the thought, script as well. I've yeah. thought a lot about how you cast the movie. And uh, I was very, I was actually upset with you at that also because <laughs> I wanted to do the stand. I was like, no, no. I know there are things that, like uh, when another filmmaker does something I really wanted to do. If it turns out well, then it's always forgiven. <laughs> well, and, and I think I, um, I, because I was upset, I, I wouldn't give it my uh, my full attention at first, but then I revisited it afterwards once my emotions had settled down a little. And um, Gary Sinise is so perfect. He's our Gary Cooper. Yeah, he's so perfect in that oh, role to play Stu. Um, it, it's, it was such good. And actually, it, it really comes down to there's two things you have to get right in making a movie. Only two things. You've got to get the casting right and you've got to get the script right. And if you can get those two things down, then you can like almost shoot it out of focus. Directing's easy yeah, if you've got those Everything elements. is easy yeah. at that point. Yeah. If you can, and you nailed it. Yeah. 
um, oh, on, the, on the casting on that film. It thank was really, so especially in that moment, Rob Lowe, yeah. um, the, the casting of Rob in it. And, um, and so I really adore it. But I was thinking about The Shining and how, how it's more faithful than the Kubrick version. You probably don't want to talk about all of this. I, it's okay. But I, well, I, because this yeah. is probably like the bane of your existence. Like, well, uh, except up. when it but, came out, it got amazing reviews. And when Kubrick's film came out, it got terrible reviews. Yeah. But yeah, it is the back and forth. King famously did not like Kubrick's film at all because Kubrick is ice and King is fire. Yeah. And well, I have so, a story that you may have heard me tell about Kubrick. And this is a story John Milius told me. Oh. So um, Gal and I worked with John on, um, John had a stroke not too long ago mm. and was unable to speak or write. And so we helped wow. him to uh, turn some of his scripts into series. So um, we're working with John. and But before, I've known John for many, many years. I consider John like a... Um, a my, mentor? My right-wing mentor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to say that. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I consider him a mentor. I just, the, the, the he's like a lion, the, yeah. the bombast of, yeah. of the man. You know, he, he, and what he represents is a kind of, uh, just a, an idea more than anything. Anyhow. He's Red Dawn. Yeah, he is Red Dawn. He is totally Red Dawn. <laughs> Avenge me! But if you think about it, Red Dawn is a very smart movie. It's effectively yeah. saying it's it's it, it's understanding what other people are going through in similar situations that we maybe as Americans don't allow ourselves to identify with, and that's what Red Dawn is. And that's a very that's not a right wing movie. I think no, in, in no. some ways, uh, even though it's excellent. called Red Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, he's an excellent writer. Anyhow, yeah. uh, um, more to the point. He, uh, um, uh, John told me the story, um, that one day Stanley Kubrick called him up on the phone and he said, uh, oh, hi, um, I understand, I'm Stanley Kubrick and I understand you, uh, you're the weapons expert in Hollywood. You're a gun guy. You're the gun expert in Hollywood. You're yes, yes, I am the gun expert in Hollywood. I am a military, uh, uh, expert, I'm uh, able, I can tell you anything, blah, 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 blah. And he, and he really can. He, the guy knows his military history. So um, uh, Kubrick says, well, I'm looking to buy a handgun for target practice for my own personal use for target practice. I'm looking to buy uh, a handgun. I want to buy the best handgun that was ever manufactured. And um, Milius thinks about it and he's like, well, that would be a Colt 45 special made 1935. I, I'm saying 1935. I don't remember what it was. Right. It could be 1941. 1932. Uh, let's say let's say it's a 1932. 1932 Colt 45 Special. Like that's the gun you want to get. And Kubrick said, "Okay, well, could you help me find one?" Oh yeah, absolutely. My one requirement is it must have never been fired. Oh. And Millie says, "Well, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard." Okay, so some time goes by and Milius is looking and finally he calls up Kubrick and he says, I found the gun. I found one. I found one that has never been fired. And uh, it's from a collector in Texas, of course. Naturally. <laughs> collector in Texas has one. And Kubrick is like, fantastic. Uh, but it's going to be expensive. And he's like, I don't care. Money goes to Texas. The gun goes from Texas to England. And some time passes. And Milius finds himself again back on the phone with Kubrick. And he says, 
so how'd you like the handgun? And Kubrick says, I loved it. I love it. I, uh, I, I had it disassembled. I, I shaved off a quarter of a millimeter of the eye line and realigned the bead. I swapped out the hammer for iodized uh, titanium. I replaced the, all the, the, the screws. I took off the mother of pearl and replaced it with mahogany. I rebored the barrel. I did this. I did that. And he's like, what have you done? You've ruined it. And Kubrick says, no, I made it better. <laughs> and that's how Kubrick adapts work. Right. He's willing to take it completely apart and completely disassemble it and ruin it. (laughs) (laughs) Ruin what it used to be, rather. Right. To recreate it into what he needs it to be. Yeah. Okay, so that's a destructive process. To anybody who loves that handgun or to, you know... uh, Cole to the the company or, you know, the the original guy who owned it, who sold it to him is probably upset about it. Yeah, yeah. But Kubrick made the perfect gun for Kubrick. Right. And so I've always kind of approached, um, because I'm a Kubrickophile, uh, um, I've always kind of approached um, adaptations like that. Like you have, the original work will always exist. It right. will always be there. And, and King we are, always makes that point, too. Yeah, and we... The book hasn't changed. Yeah, the book is still the book. Well, yeah. the, the stand has changed. He's added to yeah. it. <laughs> Which... Or he... Uh, rather, yeah. he restored he it. He did. He yeah. restored it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the movie will be the same. Although, we can get into THX afterwards. Well, okay. Because <laughs> the redux, I think, is a very interesting... Uh, yeah. You know, recreation of his original work. Um. So anyhow, I uh, um, I had always kind of approached adaptations like that, and with Rules of Attraction, um, when the time came to adapt the um, the well, I actually didn't even own the rights to the to the material when I wrote the adaptation. I was uh, I had not made a movie in a while. I had been struggling to get a film made, and um, and I was having to be honest, I was just having trouble getting a movie. I was having no problem getting writing work because right. of. Uh, um, you know, you win an Academy Award, you have no problem getting ready yeah. to work. And, but that in itself becomes a little bit of a, a little bit of a trap. People start seeing you as a writer. Right. And um, I think one of the smartest things that Soderbergh ever did is immediately following Sex, Lies, and Videotape, instead of like, you know, taking all the writing jobs that came to him in Hollywood, he made a point of directing Jonathan Lemkin's script right. of, uh, um, uh, what is it? The, I can't even remember oh, the name of the movie now. The, um, the black and white movie. No, 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 no. Actually, I like the black and white yeah. movie. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, but, um, uh Oh my God! What was the second one? Uh, the one Jeremy Irons. Uh, I can't even remember the name of it. Uh, it it's based on. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> We're both brain farting. Here, I, I'm, so. I'm brain farting. Yeah. I, it was, it's 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 not really what. Anyhow, I um. Reading uh, uh, Rules of Attraction, the book. It's it's almost formless. It's conflicting uh, narrate narrative devices. It's. Uh, um, well, that fits very well in your wheelhouse. Well, it does, but it, I'm not sure it fit well then. I mean, maybe yeah. because of Pulp Fiction, a little bit with the um, sort of intersecting, intersecting, yeah. overlapping stories and sort of breaking form a little bit. Uh, people were more accepting of it, but I woke up in the middle of the night because I, I had gone to a very similar school to, uh, in California, um, uh, in Menlo Park. And a very similar school to Camden uh, in their liberal, small liberal arts college, you know, a bunch of Hollywood kids there, like Brian Metavoy and 
yeah. uh, people like that. And uh, everybody running around and just like that book. And I had been thinking about the book and then I woke up in the middle of the night realizing how to adapt it and just went and did it and uh, sat down and started because I had to get it out of my system. And then I took the script because I was like, I, I didn't, couldn't, I didn't think I could get that made because the script, it had no page one. It, uh, it had blocks of dialogue that were like four pages long. I did everything that you weren't supposed to do. Right. Right. Uh, it had, uh, you know, kind of no ending. It well, had you're doing it on specs so every now and not? then in the script, yeah. like when during the split screen sequence where, uh, it kind of folds together and becomes Which is a, a brilliant shot. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I described the technically the, you know, the equipment that would be needed to do it because I'd been working with motion control prior to that on some special effects stuff. And, uh, and so I had been working with motion control. And so I wrote exactly what it needed. I basically wrote a technical document of how to make the movie. And then I took it and I put it into this drawer that I have of scripts that are just not ready to be made or not, you know, they're just, I just didn't think anybody, I couldn't get anything normal made at that point, at that point. Yeah. And so how was I going to get that made? And then Greg Shapiro, um, the producer of, he hadn't yet produced Zero Dark Thirty. He was just actually Nick Nolte's assistant at that time. He uh, he became friends with me, and he was trying to get a, another script of mine. I wrote this script about the Hotel Lutetia in Paris mm. during and the Nazi occupation, and um, I just didn't want to give him the script because it's like one, it's not ready, it's not right, it's not. It was you know, written for you so far, not for anybody else to read. I didn't feel that I was even mature enough to release the script, mm. like. I mean, it's a movie. The, okay, just a little sidebar. The Hotel Lutetia is a hotel in Paris, um, and it was used after the Shoah, after the end of the war, uh, as a gathering point for all of the survivors to, you know, to, who, who lived in Paris to come back, and they would be there, and then people would wander the halls finding their loved ones. Well, during the occupation, it was like Gestapo headquarters, along with all the other big hotels in Paris, and they were torturing people in all those rooms. And so you go there now, and it's a very weird vibe. You know, there's a plaque on the outside that's sort of like, because as they have in Paris, these yeah. plaques that say, here died, you know, so-and-so on the 6th of May, or here died, you know, whatever, you know, machine gun to death, and you can see the bullet holes in the walls and stuff yeah. like that. Well, they have a plaque outside in front of the hotel saying what's going on, but they have a tree pushed in front of it to hide the plaque. Oh, and so nice. that began a journey of mine to write that material and you write it. And, and that's why I learned you have to be, I have to, I have to be really careful about what I adapt and how I adapt it. Because with that script in particular, when you're writing about something as dark, as truly dark, real dark, like right. not movie genre, dark, like right. real dark, um, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard on me because I have to, as a writer, I have to be the torturer and the tortured. Yeah. You have to be able to sympathize with both and understand where both are coming from in order to be true to both characters and to not be black and white. And I can go pretty far. <laughs> like, and so when it came to, you know, torturing and being tortured and feeling the torture and doing the torture in a script, like as a writer, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, um, and one of the most difficult and, and it's just, I'm just not ready. I, I can't put that movie out. I'm nobody's going to want to see that from me. I like, I'm not the guy to necessarily do that, but I had to write it. Right. So Greg course. was trying to get this script and I was like, no, 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 no. And then finally I said, okay, take this. And I gave him the rules of attraction and he read it. And he's like, what are you doing? How come you're not making this? 
Good point. And I was like, well, I can't get the money to make it. He said, let me, let me do it. Let me see if I can do it. And God love him. Greg went out and he got the money to make the movie. And he got it at a, at the, in, I mean, at a, at a, at a moment when after American psycho was a big hit for the studio and the Patrick Bateman character happens to be in, uh, the book rules of attraction. Yes. He doesn't kill anybody in it, but he's in it. Yep. He's a, he's a character in it. Yeah. And, um, I remember there was a moment where we were just beginning and Mike Pasternak, who's really the, the hero at Lionsgate, who, uh, um, who got that movie made there. And I will love if Mike's out there listening to this, I love you, Mike, <laughs> Mike Pasternak is a, he was a great, great man for me because he basically fought to get that movie made and he sold it up you know, the ladder there by basically saying it's, it's American psycho two. And at one point they were like, would you, why don't you just call it American psycho two colon the rules of attraction. And I had to say no. And that was because there's always a point as a filmmaker, when you have to walk away, you have to be willing to walk away. Yeah. You have to be willing to say no. And it's always that moment where the movie either falls apart or doesn't. And it actually happened on this movie every every day. (laughs) Yeah. And I've done that. I've walked away. Yeah, and, and I've done it's, that. It's I've painful. walked away from more movies than than I've made, and it's so painful. Obviously, I've walked away from more movies. Than I made. I've <laughs> walked away from a movie a year, it seems. <laughs> but it's mostly because you know when you're making a film, the people that you like, you're going to war when you make a movie. It's you know, you have to be organized. You have to be like a like a. I mean, that's why John Milius kind of understands cinema is because he understands war. You have to be willing to take your troops and go into battle. You're either going to fight an away battle, which is more difficult and requires supply line chains and <laughs> shit like that. And you're yep. fighting, you know, in a, in an uncertain environment, you've got Confederates you're not, you're uncertain of, you know, it's a, uh, it's more difficult or you can do a home battle, which is immediately easier, but you still got all these like issues that you have to deal with that are, you know, weather issues and supply issues. And, and every minute of your day is the movie. Yeah, and every minute you it becomes the only thing that there yeah, is. You and can't so, have a life. Yeah, there 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 is no life, and so yeah. <clears throat> well, we are going beyond our usual length, but happily so. That's normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. But I do want to talk about criticism because you are aware of film criticism. You read it. You study it uh, academically. You are into film criticism. You talk about it on the podcast and the like. Rules of Attraction got widely, wildly divergent reactions. Um, so yeah, Euphoria seems to have gotten all my good press. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, God bless you. You know, I know what it feels like to get terrible reviews and to get really good reviews. And anyone who says they don't read them, more power to oh, them. I don't believe most of them. When Killing Zoe came out, I was in the south of France working on a TV movie. And uh, when it came out, um, I was, I remember I was on set and I got delivered like, Oh, here's all your reviews uh. and, from England. And I was like, Oh, I'm so excited. Yay! And I sat down <laughs> like at lunch or whatever. And I was like sitting at, alone at a table and, you know, people hadn't yet gotten their meal. And I started taking out the reviews and I started reading them and I started crying. Oh, they were so like the British critic, the critic, the, the Brit critics, are so um, intense. <laughs> like when Cleverly they don't like mean. you, oh, they turn the knife <laughs> yeah. after they've stabbed you. They're like just 
gutting you with it. And I've never heard such terrible things. Well, I, I have actually, but <laughs> I had heard, I mean, at that point it brought me to tears and I, I was weeping at the lunch table and people would walk up like to sit down and they'd just turn away. Cause I'm there like Ugh. crying. Well, like, you are your work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, it was so hard. You know, you labor so hard to make something and to, you know, to serve the material and to, to make something and to put it on screen and you're, you're naked yeah. in many ways. You're standing up there naked. If you're really good at what you do, you are naked. Yeah. If you're really true to, to yourself, you're naked yeah. up there. And then next thing you know, people are just crapping all over it. And, yeah. you know, um, how do you deal with it? I, uh, well, I cried, <laughs> well, but, that. but these days it's different. Like I now understand that's just part of it. And also a movie has many lives. Um, you know, when I first saw Blade Runner, when I, at the South Bay cinemas, the UA South Bay, I remember I saw the movie with a friend and I hated Blade Runner. Yeah. Okay. I'm like a science fiction horror guy. I like right. you. These, this is like my lifeblood. Yeah. And I go to that movie and I'm like, blah, it's awful. It's Harrison Ford <laughs> leaning on a piano, plunking a piano key and staring up at windows and just boring, dumb. I hated it. Okay, Roger. <laughs> a few, you know, years later, I saw the movie again. and I was like, what was I thinking? Like, yeah, what was going yeah. on with me? Yeah. Well, what was going on is that movies are different depending on whatever chapter in your life you're in, exactly. whatever you're experiencing, you interpret all of that stuff differently and it comes off the screen. And, and so you can watch different movies at different times of your life and appreciate them in different ways and understand them in different ways. And like, maybe like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know why this pops into my head, but maybe you think Kramer versus Kramer is just a boring ass movie until you've lived it. Right, and then right. it's like, well, now it's a movie I can relate to or something like that. Well, just one last question. How did parenthood change you as a filmmaker, as a, as a creator? Well, um, it's funny because I, uh, your daughter Gala is I, sitting I, right I, next she to She was you like very, very young when I did, um, uh, rules of attraction. Oh, yeah. Actually, she was, she was, uh, um, during the Academy Awards, my wife was actually uh, pregnant with mm -hmm. um, Gala. And so she was born shortly after that. And then by the time Killing Zoe came around, I mean, I'm sorry, by the time Rules of Attraction came around, um, you know, I was making that film and I was, you know, I had a young family. I had my son as well. And so I had two kids and, you know, I was, I, I think, pretty suburban, actually. Yeah. I remember Oliver Stone came over to my house once after Rules of Attraction. He was thinking about, um, well, he, he wanted to meet with me and talk with me. He loved the movie. He saw the movie and yeah. he's like, oh my God, I've got to meet you. And he came to my house and I was living in Manhattan Beach at the time in like, you know, a neighborhood in a house that looks like a normal house. And it, we have furniture and, you know, it's like, it's all made up. And my wife has got like doilies and things, you know, like the <laughs> pillows and throws and things like that. And he came in and he was like, this isn't your house. This is like, a, <laughs> you're putting me on. And I don't believe it. And I, I, he thought I was, I was faking him out like that. He assumed that I was some kind of punk filmmaker because was, of your aggressive cinema. But really what it was, Mick was that I thought I was not ever going to make another movie. And I was like, this might be my last movie. I've managed to get to this point and the, and the script is pretty far out and I'm, I keep telling them this is what it is and they keep letting me move forward. I mean, almost everything I wanted I got while making that movie. 
even though the budget, except for the budget. <laughs> well, there's always that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my budget was 10 million and I was like, or it was actually like nine, nine, eight. Right. And it was just under 10. I was like, I can't make it for a dime less. And they said, well, we're not making it then. And so I sat down with Mike Pasternick and in one like sitting in like about an over an hour and a red pen, I just went through the budget and cut everything. Yeah. I cut air conditioning. I cut craft service. I cut it all. And I think just the act of me sitting there with a red pen, cutting my salary, cutting this, cutting that, cutting everything out of it. And these executives sitting there watching, knowing that they have the money to make the movie. Of course they do. And telling me that, well, you know, we'll give you four, you know, to make it. Okay. To cut six million out of any budget, yeah. uh, off of a $10 million budget, to, to cut any budget in half is not easy as anyone will tell you you've got to cut you've got to start cutting weeks you've got to start cutting impossible things to cut yeah i cut everything and i think just watching me do that gave them faith in me and also the fact that i was now making the movie for less but then at that point uh nick meyer who was the guy who did foreign sales at lionsgate he was at that table he saw what i did and then he suddenly became my new best friend as far as like i'm gonna like upsell this movie he made sure that even though the sales numbers weren't high enough, that he fudged them. Hmm. Like Shannon Sossman at that moment, nobody was really certain about you know her in the yeah, role. They wanted wonderful. me to cast another actress, and I, and I wanted Shannon at that point. But um, you know, it, it was uncertain, and they weren't sure. But he start, he fudged the numbers on everybody, and actually, even the jury was out on whether bringing in all these kind of. I mean, I, I don't want to belittle in any way WB by saying people. WB actors, yeah. but, um, yeah. So did, did part of that sense of responsibility come from parenthood? I still want to get, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, it hasn't changed him at all. Yeah. It hasn't changed me at all. No, 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 I would say that parenthood hasn't really changed me, except for the fact that as my daughter has grown up and has been working with me, has been like producing movies with me for me, and um, and is now working with me on the podcast. I, we've been working together for how long? Ten, God, twelve, almost twelve years now. Wow. About twelve years. So. So when she was 15, it was like, okay, off we go to work on a TV series in Canada. Um, and was that the one we went to work on yeah. first? And so, and it's been like that ever since. And, um, you know, really what it was is having my daughter with me and working with me keeps me honest and it keeps me kind of pure, uh, in a, in a way. Um, I, uh, like the Roger that you're getting here is actually the real Roger, I presume, because <laughs> I don't lie in front of my daughter. Am I lying at all? No, you can't lie in front good of me. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, um, uh, so yeah, it, it, I don't know that it really changed me. It deepened you. It deepened me. It gave me a greater appreciation. I think as I've grown older, like other experiences in life, I, you know, um, I was in a terrible accident and, uh, it was, it was my fault and I did time. I was incarcerated for a while coming out of that. I had a different kind of perspective on existence and how precious everything is and how delicate and, um, the, the balance of life is that I have a greater appreciation and I'm a little less, um, uh, I would say now a little less haphazard with how I say things, because 
my greatest frustration is that w- is when my work has been misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, when Rules of Attraction first came out, you mentioned like kind of the checkered reviews that it was getting. I was getting great <laughs> reviews in France and actually England really made up for, <laughs> for you know, they really, because they do the opposite as well. Yeah. When they're not turning the knife, they're lionizing you and they really... Um, the, the British critics who, uh, they were really good to me with rules of attraction. And, um, and so, uh, anyhow, I, yeah. I well, you're my... <laughs> sharing it with your progeny. You're sharing your work and your personal life together, continuing into her adulthood and all. That's a pretty phenomenal place to be. Well, if I was a cobbler, she would like learn how to make shoes. And if I was a cooper, we would be making barrels. But, but you're doing it, is, it together. And yeah. That's, and that's pretty impressive. And it, it's, it's really been an opportunity for me to like, to take the things that I love and then introduce them to her. And which I, uh, when she was younger and before we were actually working together, I probably did things too too soon. Like I would expose her to like, well, Polanski's the tenant. Look, here's a comedy gala. Let's yeah. watch a comedy. Yeah. You'll get this. <laughs> hey, you'll, you'll love this. Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> sorry we've, about that. Gala. We've barely scratched the surface and, and, and there's so much more to your professional life that we can get into. And I hope we can do this again, but we need to wrap it up now. No worries. I, I know that I'm like a, like a, like a gab fest. That's I, what this show is about. It's was, learning about artists and how, who they are and how they function. I didn't always used to be this way. I actually, in, uh, when I was doing my Victor European trip, uh, that you see in rules of attraction yeah. uh, in 1987, after working at empire, I went and traveled around, uh, Europe. And one place I went to was uh, Blarney castle in uh, yeah. uh, Ireland and I actually I don't even know if you're allowed to do this anymore but I kissed the Blarney Stone I did which oh you did <laughs> yeah. so you too you, yeah. so you understand I've yeah. got the gift of gab it's like it's I and I was asking my wife today is it a curse like I always thought it was a <laughs> blessing but is it a curse <laughs> it can be both <laughs> well thank you so much for coming here in gala I'm glad you were here to accompany and uh and good luck with all of the stuff and thank you for all of the great entertainment and the podcast anyone who hasn't Listen to it yet. It's called Video Archives, and it's available anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.